Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, Welcome to the Mount this morning. Uh, my name is George. I'm one of the pastors here at the Mount. And we are in the middle of our series, um, Advent in Exodus. And so we are to this morning going to be looking at Exodus 16. We could do the whole chapter, but we're only going to do up through verse 21. Um, and so if it's up there, I'm going to go ahead and read. Not quite yet. There we go. Okay. Exodus 16.1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more 
some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Will you pray with me? Father, would you use this passage to bring life um, in hearts that are anxious, that are worried for the future, um, feeling guilt and shame for the past? Father, would you help us know your provision? Would you help us know Jesus better? Would you help us know the heart of a father who longs to comfort and care for his people, a God who can be trusted? Father, would you speak this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So this is not your typical, I don't know if there's a typical Advent message. Exodus 16 is not it. Um, some texts are more fundamental, more foundational. Some are more applied. Um, and this is one of those texts that's very fundamental, very foundational. You start with math, you kind of, you start with addition and subtraction before you move on to multiplication and division, before you move on to algebra. Who wants to do algebra before knowing how to add? Before you get to geometry, finally, and proofs and calculus and things that are too mind-bending to even care about. Um, for those of you who don't care about math, there's other examples of this foundational kind of thing. Like when we learn to read, we don't stop, start with uh, Chaucer, or we don't start with Tolkien as much as the Lord of the Rings would be a great thing to learn in kindergarten. We start with the ABCs, right? And when we sing, we begin, I won't do it, we begin with Do, Re, Mi, yeah, you get the idea. We move from concrete things to abstract things. And so this passage is foundational to grasping God's character. They get a concrete image of God's provision and his care despite their sin and their grumbling. We see salvation, exactly how God is going to do it, through provision of himself, him being the bread. And we see him play out what it means to be his people. And so with that, let's jump right into the text if you'll look with me at verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read those again. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so first, let's start out with the complaint. Let me say, better off dying under the plagues 
It, it would be better if God had just wiped us out in Egypt rather than bringing us here. No good can come of this. It's an expression of just thanklessness. God has shown himself powerful. He pulled them out of Egypt by his very own power. He rescued them from Pharaoh's army. He has led them all this time already, and they, they're thankless. They don't understand what God has actually provided even to this point. But they quickly move on, right? They sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. They're kind of envisioning that Egypt was all good. It was, it was great. We had all the meat we wanted. We had all the bread we could eat. We were satisfied. Nothing like this terrible thing now that Moses and that God himself has done to us. So they exaggerate. They look back on the past and think of it as a golden era and wonder, where is God now? And then they finally end this complaint with a, you are trying to kill us to Moses and Aaron, as if Moses and Aaron, their goal is to bring Israel out so that they'll die in the wilderness. We can very much be like that. We impugn the motives of those God has put in front of us to lead, to teach. And so this complaint comes before Moses and Aaron, and it's helpful to kind of think first through the context. What, where are we coming from? And notice that this is not just one or two individuals coming before Moses and going, hey, we think you could do better. This is the whole congregation, all of the people coming before them and complaining. And so you can imagine that this has been building ever since Elam. Um, Elam was um, springs, like known for its water. And so this has been building step by step until the whole people are now complaining we want food, we're hungry, we're starving. And so far, the grumbling has proved pretty successful. This isn't just a plan, this isn't just them complaining. They have grumbled already to this point and gotten exactly what they wanted. Um, just before we were talking, and, and actually we, in Word and Prayer, we were talking through you know, Naomi calling herself bitter, uh, Mara. Israel has just been given water when they were dying of thirst because the water was bitter. And God cleanses the water, and all because of grumbling, they're able to, to oh, we get good water now. And then he marched on to Elam, and it's tons of fountains, it's springs, it's an oasis in the desert. They can drink their fill, sip on Evian, whatever they want to do. But to them, this is all oh, if we grumble, we get our way. And so you have this growing sense of discontent in a body and knowing that if I do this, I get this response. It's only been a month. They've, they've, they've only, it's only been a month since God rescued them out of Egypt with the 10 plagues. That's how far they've gone. So it's not like their rescue is in a distant past. This is very present in their minds. And not only were they rescued, but they have had God's presence in a cloud following them the whole way. It's not a, you know, maybe I'll see God do something miraculous here in the near future. Maybe my children or grandchildren. No, no, no. He's right there. He's staying with us. 
So why? We look at the text and go, why would Israel be so stupid? Why would they be so silly, ununderstanding? And we have to stop a minute and go, are we better, though? And so we're going to look at two things. One is going to be kind of the heart, and the other is going to be the tongue. And so we'll start with the heart and just say, just as Israel was thankless, we can be pretty thankless. We don't see the blessings. We, we become inured to the things that God is giving, and we see them as normal. Or worse, we see ourselves as the source. We forget that it's God who blesses. It's God who rescues. It's God who delivers. We see ourselves as the one who have to account for everything we have. And so when the trials come, as they are for Israel, it's not, it's, it is the wilderness. They are without food. But when that trial comes, their eyes are on them instead of on God. Their eyes are looming large as themselves. How are we going to make this happen? What is our leadership doing about this instead of what is God doing in us? Rather, they should have been rejoicing. Philippians 4.4 tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's not that trials won't come. And it's not even that they're not going to be hard to the point of our breaking, but we are still called to rejoice because the Lord is present. But moving on from our potential thanklessness, we move on to we often are envious. We're covetous. We want things, we want reputation, and we want success. That's what we read in James. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we covet. And then we're anxious. We're, we're more concerned about how are we going to get that next promotion? How are we going to build that relationship? How are we going to get the good job? How are we going to get the nice car, the whatever? We work at this frenetic pace to accomplish what we want all the time, ignoring the God who rescues and delivers and provides. And that can come either wanting the future now. We can be anxious because what we want is we want to bring what's 10 years ahead or five years ahead and we have to have it now. So we're not going to live now. We're going to look to the future and we're trying to drag it in. God's timing says that's just not going to work out. And so we bring that anxiety upon ourselves. And sometimes it's the exact opposite. We see that future out there five years, 10 years, one year, and we fear it. We're anxious because the future is coming and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And this anxiousness ultimately looks like no peace, no rest, no security. We see no experience of comfort from the Father. We forget what he's done. We see Israel ignoring the cloud that's right over there and we can think, no sight to Jesus. You might remember Peter walking on the water and just taking his eyes away ever so briefly and sinking. 
and no rest in the Spirit. The mission of the church is up to us, forgetting that the Spirit is there. The Spirit is the one leading that mission. And so we're anxious. You'll get tired of this before we're done, but greedy. <laughs> we're greedy. We, <laughs> we, we come to this passage and we might go, you know, it's been a month. They're hungry. Their provisions are gone. But let's put this in perspective. They're, the very next chapter, they're going to complain that they don't have water again to feed their livestock. They are not dying of hunger. They have milk. They have cheese. If they want to slaughter an animal, they can. They have food if they will use it. But instead, they're going to complain. They're going to grumble because they want what they have without cost. They want to get what God will give without cost, and grumbling has worked. And we can be just like that, greedy. We, we want to store up for the future, and so we'll be anxious about today again. We want to have, have, have without the cost involved. And we can be, we can be self-deceptive. We view the past with rose-colored glasses. We imagine or remember imagining what God did for us in the past when he was super present and he was really, we just noticed him in our Bible study. We noticed him in our prayer times and he's just not there now. And we have those feelings. We're, we're human and we shift. We, 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 we are not stable, but we need to be careful that this thanklessness doesn't develop into a sense that God was there in the past, but he's no longer there. We can be arrogant. We can think we know better. You know, ah, I would be a better leader than Moses. I would have gotten them there faster. I'm more committed than that other person on the pew. I give more. I studied longer. With Paul, I came from the right background. We can be so arrogant where God calls us to be thankful. And then we can be manipul manipulative, just like Israel here. You brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is an argument going nowhere other than, I'm going to make you feel bad. I'm going to make you twist your will to get what I want. And so that maybe focuses more on character, but what we're kind of missing in this is the building up from temptation to sin and from individual sin to a whole people sinning. The tongue is an amazing uh, thing that God has given us, but ultimately, if we have this internal monologue that's all about what we want and that temptation to sin, whatever it looks like, and we nurse it, it eventually builds to where we actually engage in sin. We actually do those things that God condemns, that he doesn't want for us. And worse than that, we tend to move on from this internal monologue to sharing it with other people. We bring people in. Don't you feel the same frustration? Grumbling doesn't happen with usually just one person without then bleeding out, exploding onto a whole body where now you have people colluding with you. We're all upset. We're all going to be angry and frustrated, and we're going to take it out on whoever is in our way. And then, of course, it moves right into accusation and conflict. We see it, it doesn't stop with just, oh, I have other people who share this feeling of angst, this feeling of frustration. 
but it eventually breeds a desire to, to overthrow, to rebel. And we're going to see that in Israel's history. And so all of this builds to a pattern of anti-worship, anti-worship. This isn't the direction that God wants Israel to go. He's not caught unawares. He knew that they were going to grumble, and he knew what he was going to do to provide. And so let's quickly run through God's answer. This is going to be brief, and we're going to revisit it. But God basically says, I will satisfy them myself, with myself. God knows what they need all along. In verse 7, 8, 9, 12, it's scattered through all the things. He keeps on saying, I have heard their grumbling. And this isn't just, a, okay, I'm finally aware of it. It's, I knew exactly what I was doing when I drew them out of Egypt in the first place. I know what kind of people they are. I know what they need to understand how to worship me, how to obey me. And I brought this situation specifically so that I can show them what it takes to be a people who is going to follow my law. So God's provision exceeds what they deserve or even need. You might wonder whether or not God should have even blessed them in this way. They're grumbling, and he basically is providing exactly what they need. He provides for their immediate need with the quails. Quails is a fairly natural thing that time of year, but he provides it for them at the exact moment they need it. And so not only is he going to take care of their long-term need with the manna, with this what is it, but he does take care of their immediate need, alleviating that hunger. And all along, his provision is intended to help them know him. It's not just to satisfy their hunger. It is ultimately to lead them to understand he is the Lord. He is their provider. It's to reveal his glory. He's the universal God, the only God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And this one act is just a little part of all that he does to sustain them and care for them. But he's also the exclusive God, the one who has revealed himself uniquely, the one who provides for them in a way that is going to point out his uniqueness. We're not going to get into a lot of Sabbath discussion. If we continued in the chapter, we would, but rest enough to know that there is no other people on the face of the earth who has a Sabbath like Israel. God sets that there on purpose to help them understand his provision. He's doing this before the law even exists to let them know, I'm going to set something that will make you unique and help you know that I'm the one you should trust because I'm the creator, I'm the sustainer. And then God's provision, as we look at it, is going to undercut their expectations. This is an agricultural people, right? They care for animals, they tend farms, and so they're used to work, 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 store, then you harvest, and then you store up, and you eat for a long time. And then you work, 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 and then you harvest, and you store up. So there's this cycle to life, and God says, skip that. I'm going to provide for your daily needs. And so they're going to be having to trust when everything in their background says, this is how God provides. God says, I'm going to provide for you still, but it's not going to be how you expect. It's going to require daily 
trust. And so as we look at this entire passage, the missing link is ultimately prayer. Thankfulness that generates prayer, that generates this relationship with God where we talk to him instead of just grumbling with others. And so we remember already, we've, we've uh, read through, we've mentioned the James passage before, but just to remind, you do not have because you do not ask. Instead of asking God and remembering what he'd already done in the past, they grumbled. They didn't ask. To the Samaritan woman in John 4, Jesus answers, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The question was never whether God was willing to give, it was whether or not people would ask. Would they grumble or would they ask? And so if grumbling is the anti-worship pattern, then prayer is the true worship pattern. It orients the heart, the mind, and the soul to trust and remember all of God's saving work. And you have thankfulness, contentment, peace, security, truth, humility, patience, dependence on God. If you want to throw up fruits of the Spirit, that's fine, but it's that character development. It's that change of heart that is the, the pivotal thing that prayer brings to us and that God is calling his people to. And then, of course, it orients the tongue. It changes that internal monologue to one of thankfulness and peace and security and dependence rather than anxiety, and arrogance, demanding. And so we see in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, blessed be your name, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We see first there that hallowed, that remembering who God is first. Before he ever asks us to have our hearts in line, we first need to know who God is, how set apart he is. But then he quickly moves to that kingdom come, that recognition that God the Father is king. God the Son is coming back as king to judge his people. That the Spirit is here enabling us to love the Son and worship the Father. And then your will be done. The, the, the Hebrew word there, for peace, shalom, is, is more than just lack of conflict, right? It is when we don't have conflict with God because we trust him, then we'll know peace. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the no accident, give us this day our daily bread. Going to God daily, even moment by moment, to have our needs met in him is the point of this test, is the point of this message 
to Israel. And so what I want to do is, is really encourage you. If you haven't already been a regular with Word and Prayer, which we do every morning before service, or every Sunday before service, not every morning, don't come tomorrow morning, at, at, that would be bad, on Sundays, make it a change to your schedule to join us, to be in God's Word, to pray through it, to get to know God's heart as a people praying to God. I can't say enough how beneficial that is for us as a body of believers, as a body of Christ followers, to be about prayer, to be about knowing thankfulness and peace and patience and putting ourselves under Christ. I'll be done with that. And so we move to the second section, um, and we look back at Exodus 16, and we're going to start at verse 4. This is the reason the passage is, you know, the, the, the outline doesn't have verses is because it kind of skips back and forth. Sorry, that's what this one does. And we're going to be looking at testing. And this says uh, at uh, Exodus 16, 4 through 5, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall, shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so what we see here is, again, we're before the law. The law will not be given to the people of Israel until chapter 20. So we have a couple chapters to go before we get there. And so when he says that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not, we see this as a pre-step. We see this as God saying, I have a bread-gathering Torah that I'm going to work you through to help you understand and know what it's going to be like to obey my whole law. What it is to really be my people, I'm going to give you a small test, and you're going to see how that will play out then when you've obeyed the whole law. God's intent was, again, that he, they would know him. That is, they would know his heart. They would know his care for him. They would know his patience with them. It's not that he expects them to work salvation with him. It's that he's already delivered them, and now he's offering them an opportunity to know what it looks like to depend on him because he's worthy of their trust, just like God is worthy of our trust. God's the source of all their needs and all their security. And so trusting in this small way is going to prepare them to know whether they can follow God's law into the future. The test involves a law that makes no sense to them. We kind of mentioned that in just the whole dependence and daily need, but in this case, it also isn't going to make sense because basically they're going to follow for six days of the week. They're going to take just a day's worth of scooping, yep, day's worth. And, and we see that at the end, they kind of mess up this test because they try to hold some over to the next day. It goes bad. It goes rancid, develops maggots. It's unpleasant. So they're not going to do that again, right, after the first maybe time or two. Maybe somebody tried more than once. I don't know. Um, but that last day, they're going to take two days' worth, which in their experience tells them what? Well, if I leave it out for a day, it goes bad. It melts away, develops maggots. So this is not a good thing, but God says, no, 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 no. On that day, you're going to gather double, and it will be fine because I'm in charge. I'm the one actually providing this. And so 
if you read commentaries, if you read about this story, you probably have heard every manner of explanation for what the manna is. Is it bug spit? Is it something else? And we could go into the details, but it's missing the point. It's missing the point. Because it doesn't work out. God was not trying to give them some natural process. It's a miracle. It is actually God working for his people quite purposely. And so I would encourage you as you're reading, it's good to know those things. It's good to know what some of the possibilities are, what people think. But ultimately, we're meant to hit this passage and see that God did something out of the ordinary. This isn't something that, okay, all the Bedouins, all the people in the desert knew that. That just happens every time. No, 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 no. This is going to last for the whole time they're in the wilderness for like 40 years. It's going to be this daily provision for them. And it's going to be over multiple space. So it doesn't fit the, anyway, God did something miraculous. So what happened? In verse 17, we read, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So ultimately, they, they failed the test they probably didn't continue to fail this test. But at first they do. They gathered, but they tried to keep it overnight. And Moses is angry. And that should make, give us pause. Why, why is Moses angry? Should he be angry? And it's a serious question. We got a couple chapters later, and we're going to find that Moses' anger at their disbelief, at their ignoring the rules, is going to end up resulting in his own sin. Moses is going to get so angry that he's going to sin out of that anger. And don't get me wrong, Moses is probably the one who understands best the position that Israel is in. Moses totally understands the thinking of this people, and we can see that at verse 6. It says, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that they grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So the people were accusing Moses and Aaron and taking their grumbling to them. But Moses saw very, very clearly that the frustration, it just was being directed at the ones they could see, but the real dissatisfaction was with God. They were thankless. The question was, God should have given them better leaders. They were anxious. Does God even care? They were greedy. God got us into this mess. He should get us out. I shouldn't have to. God should do it. They were self-deceptive. God was better to me in the past. They were arrogant and manipulative. If I were in charge, we'd already be there. What is God even doing? And someone has to take the blame. Someone has to be the, the one who's going to receive that venting of their anger and their frustration. And it's Moses and Aaron who they directed at. 
But notice how God deals with that situation. If you jump with me to verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And so God responds, make them come into my presence. He's been, the cloud has been there. And they've maybe gotten a little bit uh, jaded or forgotten what that cloud means. He says, let them know that he's God, not some man that can, they can threaten or bully. So he's, as Aaron is speaking, come before the Lord, boom. That cloud is different. God is there. And it's very, very clear. Maybe we're not accusing the right person, or maybe we're not clear about where our hearts are. Ensure them he knows what they're experiencing. Twice in this passage, it's not a very long part right there, but twice, he says he knows what they're going through. He's heard their grumbling. And then tell them exactly how he will satisfy them and what he expects. God puts the, the image directly on him. You're grumbling. You're grumbling at Moses and Aaron. You're upset. You're frustrated. But you haven't looked at me. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. Maybe it's a little help then that that's a little bit of vindication. These, they've accused these men of intending to kill them. Moses and Aaron had desired good things all along, not their deaths in the wilderness. So that's nice. But really, we need to start thinking of Israel and their response, and then how the church responds. And, and just think through how many times Paul is having to write a letter. We call them situational because he writes letters because something is going on. He writes to 1 Corinthians uh, because they're kind of, in this thing of, like, who's the best celebrity pastor? Who, who, who can we associate and say, I'm, you know, this guy's disciple. I'm this guy's disciple. And Paul cut that out. But we're very much like that. We want, yeah, we create conflict. We create this grumbling to have our will stoked and our image worshipped rather than God. Or just think Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And you get that picture of Moses standing in the gap between Israel and God because they've yet again been rebellious, yet again grumbled that God can't provide and God isn't providing let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So before we get any further, just to point out, Jesus is the true shepherd of his church, just as he was the true shepherd of Israel. And being a leader under God is not an easy task. Being a member is not an easy task. But being a leader, being a shepherd, is difficult. There's teaching and there's modeling of Christ-like character and humility and dependence 
there's counseling, there's people who have serious need that it needs to be addressed. There's discipling, growing people up to take on responsibility and leadership and just to worship God properly. There's grieving to be done with people who, they have sickness, they have deaths in families. There's, there's grieving to be done when marriages break up. And there's a lot of prayer to be done. And we need to make sure as all of that is happening that our grumblings, we direct them to the right person. We direct them to God and not at those leaders. They're not perfect. We're not, we're not perfect. There'll be times to criticize. But we need to make sure that those grumblings where it's really we're mad at God, we're frustrated with God, we don't understand where we're going, where we're coming from, that we direct that to the right person. We direct that to God. And to that end, I want to just say, in Brian Mann, we have excellent reason to give high commendation. He's well-deserving of double honor. He has no idea I was going to do this, is red in the face and hiding under his chair. But if we just think of what Brian does, a consistent desire to bring us into God's presence, a consistent desire to let them know what God can do, not to threaten or bully you into submission or into doing his will, or even submitting to that from others, but God is the one who will provide for his church. Ensuring us that God knows where we are and telling us exactly how God desires to satisfy that need. We have somebody who cares about teaching in Brian. We have somebody who cares about modeling Christian hospitality, um, discipling, um, how to counsel, um, how to grieve well, how to care for those grieving well, of praying no matter the situation. He's well-deserving of double honor. And to that end, I'm going to do something abnormal, and we're going to pray. And so if you'll pray with me. Father, we thank you for the way you provide for us. It is not lost on us that you are Lord of your church and that you give us exactly what we need to please you, to worship you, to love you better, and to grow in likeness to the Son. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Brian. We thank you for his family. And we ask that you would continue to bless us as he teaches, as he leads. Father, we also pray for all those that you will raise up, that you are raising up in your church. God, hear that you would give us elders that would love you with their whole heart, um, that would understand what it meant to deal with criticism. Elders that would counsel well, that would pray well, that would model the fruit of the Spirit, that would model what it is to be a pure, God-fearing person. God, we pray for the church in desperate need of leaders who will depend on God, that will depend on the Savior and not simply speak 
whatever they think will please a crowd or whatever is comfortable for this culture. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're not there. Done. Done yet. Normally, I know we end with a prayer. That's, that's not it. To kind of continue this passage, what we're actually going to do is switch gears and we're going to look at John 6. You've already read a number of different parts of it. Just like Israel didn't listen to Moses, we often fail to listen to Jesus. We want the miracle. We want the dramatic, the storybook ending. But we often come to it without the patience, without the work, without the sacrifice, and without being willing to deal with the offense of the gospel and recognize that the gospel is offensive when it calls us to die to ourselves and live for Christ. We want it. We want these miracles, this dramatic, this storybook ending at our beck and call. We want to be the ones in charge. We're fine to follow as long as we're in charge. And so what I want to do, if you didn't already, John 6 was on our prepare. If you didn't already, though, read through John 6, or just because you feel like you could look at it again after this message, I'm going to encourage you to this afternoon or this week, just dig into John 6, the whole thing. It's a good chapter. You won't be disappointed you spent extra time reading John 6 and meditating on John 6. But let's briefly take a look at how Jesus understands his mission in light of this passage. So events, quick run through. First, the very beginning of the chapter is the feeding of the 5,000. Big, huge thing. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, probably more. That's maybe just the men, whatever. But he, massive feeding. Um, absolutely miracle. No way of, around it. And the people look for him. He kind of fades away, gets across the, the way, and the people are looking for him. And he says, we read it this morning already, you are seeking me because you ate a lot, not because of a sign. And we may read that and be like, like that's weird. They are wanting a sign. But they, they don't actually care about a sign in the way that John intends. A sign points to Jesus. It's not just a miracle. It's not just this powerful act of God. A sign points to Jesus. And Jesus says, you want the food because you got fed. You want more food because you got fed. You don't want it because you saw the sign and it made you go, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. You just want to be fed. They say, what must we do then? And he says, believe in the one God who sent me. They go, whoa, okay, whoa, 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 what sign do you do? What? Did you not notice what I just did that just over the river, you saw it just over there, um, that I fed everybody? Um, they go, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Maybe you could do something like that. Jesus says, Moses didn't do it, God did. And I am the bread that's sent from God. So you're completely missing the point. The bread comes down from heaven. I'm the bread sent from God, the bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat me, eat of me, you will have eternal life. And the text is not hidden about it. What do they do? They grumble. 
this is not just a random incident that Jesus is going through. Jesus is replaying for them Exodus 16. The people grumble because they have God's provision, but not the way they want it. They say, we know where Jesus is from. He didn't come down from heaven. We know his brothers and his sisters. He's nothing. And Jesus says, don't grumble. And he reiterates, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. If you want to trust in manna and a sign, they're all dead. If you come to me, you will eat of me and live forever. Because you'll have me. And the response is, ooh, offense. They are not happy about this answer. Not only are the Jews not happy about his answer, his own disciples are not happy about his answer because he isn't playing to the crowd. He's not telling them what they want to hear. He's letting them know that the sign they want is him crucified for them. The sign they're looking for is him giving up his life for them. The sign that they're looking for is him standing before them, having come from heaven in order to pay for their sin. They couldn't see the glory in the cloud, the glory of the only Son of God. They couldn't see that he was there to pay for the curse, to deal with their sin. And so that is what we want to see from this passage, is that God had provided for their need and was going to provide for their need. He knew their grumbling. He knew that that grumbling was ultimately tied up with sin that their hearts were far from him and could not be drawn closer without the death of Jesus. He paid for their sin. Nobody else could. Nobody else was able. Nobody else was willing. But Jesus was. So are we eating from this bread daily? God's people should be known for coming back repeatedly. And first, that that means salvation. And so just lay it out there, friends. If you haven't come and tasted of this bread, tasted of Jesus, known his salvation, his forgiveness, you can do that today. He's waiting. He's, He's calling and inviting those who will hear. And we would love to talk with you about it. We'd love to to know that God is working in your life. Brothers and sisters, it's not just something in the past to look back on as that was cool, that was a great event, but God's salvation, his breadiness, is something we should be consuming daily. We should be daily depending on him, daily trusting him, daily sacrificing in every way we can. So God set before Israel a path. Trust me, and I will provide for your needs. And in spite of their repeated grumbling, in spite of rebellions and disobedience and idolatry, God proved himself faithful time and time again. 
He's the Lord of hosts, and he provides perfect rest and perfect security and perfect peace. And Jesus is the culmination of all that God was doing for and through Israel. And he says it this way in John. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. And that's closely connected with before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am the door. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who leads the way God intended Adam to lead. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And in the garden, on the way to being crucified, he says, I am he, the one you're looking for. Will you pray with me? Father, would you take these words in Exodus 16 and bury them deep in our hearts? Father, would you help us to understand that you are the provider. You're the one who cares and gives us everything we need for salvation, for eternity. Jesus, we know you are coming again as Lord of everything. But we don't have to wait for the future to know your presence, your provision, your care for your people, your empowerment of your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us dwell richly in your word, that you would help us to love one another well, that we would not have root of bitterness grow up among us, but that we would constantly all, as one united people, look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.